Uh, this is Lindsay Miller, and you're listening to the Arkansas Times Week Interview Podcast, recorded Friday, March the 18th. On this week's edition, we're going to talk about the verdict in the case of a Lone Oak County Sheriff's deputy who fatally shot a teenager in a traffic stop. We'll also talk about the legacy of Brent Renault, an expensive tweak to the 30 crossing plan, and the controversy surrounding a potential downtown Little Rock parking deck. I'm joined, as usual, by Max Brantley. Afternoon. So uh, the jury returned a verdict in in the the case of Michael Davis, the the Lone Oak County Sheriff's deputy who fatally shot 17 year old Hunter Britton last year. And uh, I don't know, was this a surprise or not? I can't really tell. Uh, well, it's a surprise to this degree. I, I according to the Democrat Gazette reporting, this is the first time. An Arkansas law enforcement officer in memory has been convicted of a crime in use of deadly force. It's a very hard thing to do. Now, he was acquitted on the, the felony charge of manslaughter and convicted on the misdemeanor charge of negligent homicide, which is, means you cause the death of somebody else by your, reckless, your recklessness or negligence. And the family of, of the teenager who was killed was disappointed because a felony conviction would have disqualified him from being a police officer ever again. Uh, this does not. I suspect he'll appeal this conviction. I don't know what the grounds are necessarily. You know, here, here's the thing. I, I'm not sure that this was a lot of the people on social media are furious that 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 he wasn't convicted of a felony. And as police shootings go, you know, yeah, he wasn't wearing a body camera, and there was some disagreement on whether he'd given a sufficient amount of warning to these guys. And But it's really kind of incontrovertible that things happen in a very short period of time. Kid jumps out of his truck, reaches for something in the trunk bed. The guy's alone at 3 o'clock in the morning. He's afraid the guy's reaching for a gun. They're trained. The hands can be deadly. He fired a shot and killed him. The guy was reaching for a can to use to block a back wheel in his car so it wouldn't roll away. Terrible, awful thing. You know, the, the guy I thought was a pretty good witness. He took the stand. He had to do it. He said, you know, I didn't sign up to be a police officer to kill anybody. He was emotional about it, clearly. I mean... He's certainly sorry about what happened. You know, th this was not a George Floyd case. This was not a run somebody down and gun them down case. It was that classic split second decision. And when it comes to civil cases, and there's some people say, oh, file a federal civil rights lawsuit. I don't think there's any ground for that here. And I, th and I think a civil, a civil action, a lawsuit against him, uh, be difficult un under the the qualified immunity that exists for law officers. He felt he was in danger and he acted because of that. And and you know it's just a terrible case. And 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 I, <laughs> I mean this was a case of a white deputy killing a white teenager who was out goofing. I mean there's not any doubt that this wasn't a criminal kid. But you know, I, 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 when you think of the people that have been killed, who've had knees put on them, and people ended up being killed for selling loose cigarettes on the streets of New York, and just stuff over and over again, just traffic stops that end up with black people dead and the cops get off, 
I mean, I, I think it's pretty remarkable that they returned the verdict against the cop. And, and this was a county of 12 Lone Oak County people. This wasn't, and I, I think you've got to give credit to the jury system and, and to the selection process. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm not ready to say this was a terrible outcome and, and that, that I'm surprised by it. All right. Well, I, I don't know. That's not a very good answer, but that's kind of where I am on it. Yeah, no, I think that's that makes sense. All right, well, let's leave it there and move on. Uh, Brent Renault, decorated documentary filmmaker from Little Rock, was killed outside of Kiev uh, last Sunday uh, while he was working on a a project on refugees for for Time Magazine. Well, he was the first American journalist killed, and then we've had some other journalists since, and it was a horrible tragedy. And I think you can speak to it better than I can. You and Sam Eifling collaborated on what I thought was the best account of his life, which is, as you can explain, really remarkable. Until I read this interview, I guess Time Magazine did with his brother Greg and that uh, Craig, and that advanced it even farther. And I thought was just a really moving interview. I mean. We were lucky to have him. He did incredible work in difficult circumstances. And I don't guess we're going to ever really know who killed him. And the Ukrainians have blamed it on Russians, the kind of people that are apologists for Russians are trying to blame it on somebody else. He was trying to make a, a, a checkpoint crossing at a difficult place. It was very dangerous. And he was in a civilian's car and Russians are killing civilians over there. And, and he happened to be, I guess it's hard. Yeah, I think it's particularly hard to say he was killed because he was a journalist. Maybe he was. There was another person with him who was wounded who was a journalist. But, uh, I mean, he, he's part of the senseless slaughter that, that Vladimir Putin has rained down upon an independent nation. And the saddest thing is the fact that there are people in America, a somewhat declining number, but who are defending Russia in this. Just unbelievable to me. Yeah, well, this this one hit hard. I I, I knew knew Brunt uh, fairly well from working with him over the years. He, of course, was uh, one of the co-founders of the Little Rock Film Festival, and uh, because he had such a strong reputation uh, among the film community, managed to bring just some some amazing uh, films and filmmakers to town. Um, and, and through that, I got to know, you know, kind of more about his work and, uh, you know, Sam and, and his obit compared them to the Maisel's brothers. And, uh, I, I think that that's fairly apt. I mean, they, they did, maybe they were kind of flying under the radar a little bit more, but they did some just amazing work, uh, you know, hanging out with heroin addicts for weeks on end embedded with the the national guard uh, arkansas national guard deployed to iraq uh you know being in in mexico and in some uh you know kind of drug wars um going all over the world and in kind of harrowing situations to to give a, a first-hand account of what was going on and like a through line um, through a through line of his career that a lot of people pointed to is that that Brent was 
was really focused on, you know, telling the stories of the downtrodden and especially, you know, kids who were were in difficult situations. And, you know, they were they were of the cinema verite style. You know, they they were not the focus ever of of their stories. They were in the background. They let the subjects speak for themselves. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just it's a terrible loss for for Arkansas, for our film community, but but for journalism all over. I, I thought Neiman Lab, where uh, Brent was a, a Neiman Foundation fellow and uh, a couple of years ago and, and got to know them and Neiman Lab, the the online journalism outfit that that writes about the industry did a really great uh, link heavy post about his work that I I would commend to everybody. Lots of embeds. In in recent years, when when digital video became a focus for for publications, especially national publications, he and Craig got tons of work that way. And so there's there's a lot of uh, a, a lot of his work that you can see just online and, and Neiman helpfully gathered that. Yeah, well the brothers website has a lot of their stuff just on their website. And, and I wanted to mention real quickly, sort of a local angle that wasn't particularly mentioned in all the coverage, and, and I don't think it should have been, but it, it, it sort of resonates to me as a Little Rock person. And one of the things they did was 50 years after Central High School uh, desegregation. And I guess he went to Central, didn't he? I think, yeah. Um, he went to Hall, Craig went to He went to Hall, Hall. right, right. Yeah. But, but of course, he's well involved in Little Rock and, and includes Little Rock as a home. But and what he did was, it was, as you said, it focused on kids and it particularly highlighted sort of an aspect of, of the desegregation of Central that is, people in Little Rock like to like to hold up Central as an exemplar and a sign of how we triumphed over, over evil back in 1957. And, and, and that story is not wholly untrue, but there's a broad group of children who go to Central then and still, some of whom are very privileged and some of whom who tend to be African-American are not so privileged. And their lives are dramatically different, both inside and outside the school. And I, I think the work they did on that didn't necessarily get greeted with cheers by some people who are sort of cheerleaders for a better Little Rock. But I think it was an example of his sort of clear-eyed journalism. Anyway, I, I, that occurred to me in, in the course of all that's been written this last week. Yeah, that that it, I, I really admired that documentary, and it's a it's a good primer on on Central yesterday and today. I <laughs> I was really moved by the the bit and the obit uh, from the the Cambodian guy who oh yeah was wow. was Brent's translator. Um, and and they became fast friends. And and when when the guy James Chen um, got a visa and a chance to become a U.S. citizen, he called Brent and was like, "I got this. I only have forty dollars." And Brent said, "Well, hang on, I'll fly over and fly back with you." And so he bought him a plane ticket, and they lived together uh, for several years. He lived in Brent's apartment and became just best friends. Um, yeah, it's just I, I don't. Uh, Austin Bailey talked to this guy. I don't think she included this, but he said, you know, he's my only friend. And it's just uh, <laughs> wow. devastating. Uh, but yeah, somebody that, that really, really made 
an enormous impact uh, in his life that will be remembered. All right, well, uh, moving on, uh, there was um, a kind of a footnote in the 30 Crossing uh, saga that uh, comes with a big pr price tag, and that's that they added at the last minute a, uh, a connection from, I don't know that I can get this exactly right, from 630 to I-30. Yeah, basically from, from southbound Interstate 30 to westbound 630, where right there by the UALR Law School in MacArthur Park. For $50 million, that, right? $55 million project. And there's still a lot of questions to be answered about this. And the Highway Commission touted, as it always does, as a gift to the public. And I don't see it that way. I don't think there's any doubt it's going to impinge on the, the southern boundary of MacArthur Park in a, in a damaging way. But it's also going to put a whole bunch of traffic on an Interstate 30 frontage road between 9th Street and Interstate 630, where it's going to feed on, onto the ramp. And I don't know why they did this. And the highway department tr is trying to tell me today that this was always a part of the plan, but somehow it got dropped out and they just added it back again. Richard Mays, who's suing over this project, says he doesn't remember it being a part of that plan. He's going to go back and look. So there's still some questions about, I suspect that this, this funnel is put on there to add an additional pathway to Interstate 630 for people who used to get on at the second street exit that's now been removed. There's a lot of talk about how, oh, if you're in MacArthur Park, you can't just get right on the freeway. You kind of got to wind around five or six blocks before you can finally get on at Center Street. Well, you know, too effing bad. I mean, big deal. I mean, I've done that. There, there, there's not a lot of traffic moving from that area to there. There are lots of Interstate 630 access points from downtown. And so I don't really know what this is about. I, I, I real, I've asked the highway department, and I'm waiting to see just who initiated again this discussion of adding this project, even if presuming it was there to begin with. Why'd they take it out to start with? Why'd they put it back? Who is this supposed to help? What's the traffic flow going to be? You know, I, I, I'm just not a fan of the highway department, this interstate project. And it's, it's again, it's a, just a huge bunch of question marks. But I'm speaking about this without a map. I, I don't think people can follow it very well unless unless they uh, <laughs> unless they're really intimately involved with it. The other funny thing this week was Studio Maine, this nonprofit design collective, which kind of fronted for the highway department early early on in, in selling the the interstate 30 widening project about oh all the innovative ways they could do some of this work and have it be more pedestrian friendly and and what have you and all of their ideas went nowhere none of them were adopted that i can see to any great degree and now they're going to have a design contest for this 20 acre patch of ground where they out the second street exit downtown and there's a big patch of ground there between oh basically the the downtown library and the clinton library that could be turned into a nice area but the highway department's providing no money for this the city's gonna have to come up with it on its own and and you know the design work to date on this project has uh, left something to be desired from where i sit so uh, I'll believe something good comes of that when it actually comes but it may not be in my lifetime given the <laughs> the length of time it's taking to do this project. Yeah, I'm sure this this uh, had been r reported over and over, and I just missed it. But 
this 30 crossing thing is going to last until 2025. And it's a disaster. It's a disaster downtown. And it's, I mean, the one thing they did do, as I said, by taking out the second street exit is they've eliminated this huge funnel of traffic to and from Lahar Boulevard right there in the river market. Very dangerous crossing. And the traffic's been greatly reduced there. Well, that's nice. Well, I don't know if that's worth a billion dollars to do that. And, uh, you know, it's uh, in the rest of the grid, they're going to be putting a bunch of traffic on 6th Street. This is going to go on forever. Yeah, they said this this new ramp is going to add six months. They put it into twenty twenty six. I mean, I had a, I had a friend who drove in from Shreveport last week, and I met him downtown, and he said, "Man, it took me forever to get to get to this hotel downtown. That freeway is screwed." But yeah, that's why I don't go down there. I mean, I don't I don't use the freeway anymore to go to the airport. Or to get to Interstate 40 to go west, I go I go out Pike Avenue in North Little Rock to get on I 40. I go on surface streets to go to the airport uh, because it's just it's a nightmare, and it's going to be a nightmare for years. All right. Well, finally, let's talk about this uh, proposed parking deck in downtown Little Rock. I, I called it a controversy. In the intro, if it is a controversy, it's it's because you made it one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, well, the background is is that in 2019, uh, the Stevens Empire, an LLC controlled by Stevens, in other words, the billionaire Warren Stevens owned business, bought a half block between Second uh, and Third Street with the Eastern Boundary Louisiana Street, tore down. Nearly all that half block, not all of it, but most of it was covered by occupied office buildings. One of them that had been historically restored and was a handsome historic building that was evocative of 19th century or early 20th century Little Rock. And they did that to create a parking lot for people who were in the Stevens Inc. Tower across the street. Stevens Inc. Tower has already taken over the parking deck next to its high rise that was built partially to serve what was then the Excelsior Hotel and is now the Marriott Hotel. Well, it turns out that, that, and this began a while back, but was delayed by the pandemic. The city worked out a deal. The Marriott wants more parking closer by. They mostly use a half block of surface parking and Main Street parking deck next door, which is only two blocks from the hotel. And I think the surface parking lot is pretty easy to use and it holds four or 500 cars, I think. But anyway, turned out some deal was cooked up by the city in which the city would buy the property from the billionaire and then build a 600 space parking deck on it. I mean, Stevens taking the buildings down for parking lot was opposed by a lot of people, including some city planners, because we got more parking lots downtown than you can shake a stick at. We have way too many. It's ruined the kind of concentration that makes a downtown a good place to be at night. A lot of parking lots don't attract a lot of people to come visit your downtown. And so, but this notion to have the city use issue its bonds and its bonding authority, and they still haven't said, the city manager so far has indicated, oh, the Stevens won't make any money on this. We'll just pay them back what they paid for the property. Well, they paid $4.3 million for property that the tax assessors now says it's worth $2.3 million because they ripped all the buildings off of it. So we're going to pay him a price that was charged because he dislocated ongoing vibrant businesses. 
and build a parking deck that, that a lot of the spaces would be reserved for him. There's, there's not yet any indication that the public will be able to park there. Or it will only be Stevens and hotel slots. We haven't seen anything like a pro forma on what it's. I did get some figures yesterday that I haven't run yet. It's going to cost at least $15 million to build it, according to an architect's estimate. So that's on top of almost $5 million for the land acquisition for $20 million. There'll be hundreds of thousands more for the bond council. Then 20-year bonds will at least double the amount of the bonds and interest uh, on top of that. I don't believe you can come up with a plan to pay for that parking deck by monthly rental alone. I may be wrong, but I do know this much. It's going to be a lot cheaper for Warren Stevens' employees to rent a space in the city subsidized deck than it would have been if Warren Stevens just fronted the cost for his own parking on the front end. And I just think it's wrong. I, I just think it's wrong. I just don't think the city should be subsidizing parking for a billionaire. And uh, I've gotten some, I've gotten a lot of uh, people who agree, but I've gotten some people who disagree. Said, "Oh, you're just saying that because you just don't like who's getting the benefit." Well, I mean, yeah, that's part of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the city, the city would not have bought that block and torn down those buildings and built a parking deck on its own hook. It would not have. People would have screamed bloody murder if they proposed to do that. But now that Stevens has kind of come through and torn everything down and said, well, you know, what the hell? We need that parking deck. The Marriott wants more parking, so why not? I, I, I don't know. I just I think it's crazy. But I suspect it's going to end up going through, is my guess. But at least they've been slowed down by only – they only got five votes at the city board meeting. And uh, I guess three voted present. And I expect they're subject to suasion, and, and I expect it to happen. But at a minimum, I hope we get better. You know, they were going to improve this without knowing what the cost was going to be. I mean, it it just it, it floored me that they were going to do something. They couldn't tell me what the whole project was going to cost, including the bonds and how they were going to be paid for. At a minimum, a member of the Little Rock City Board shouldn't vote for that, as, as Kathy Peck, my normal great board director did without knowing those figures on the front end. That just seems due diligence to me. So that's uh, my rant. That's my rant. We will continue to watch that. Let's uh, move on to endorsements. What do you got this week? Well, I've started watching the Gilded Age, which is kind of a New York 19th, early 20th century version of Downton Abbey. And I, I mostly watch it because anything that uh, Ashley Atkinson, Little Rock native, is in, she's got a supporting role in it i always watch but it looks i mean the thing about it, it's you know some scheming climbing social climber wealthy woman is kind of the the central piece of it but uh if you like costume dramas and you like elaborate settings in the vein of downton abbey it's done new york style and so i can recommend it that but mostly i've been spending my time perfecting potato salad Oh, I think Little Rock is a potato salad desert. <laughs> Nobody makes good potato salad since Cordell's went out of business and they made great potato salad. And I've been trying them all over town. The real the real sin in Little Rock is potato salad is too sweet. And so I've stopped just finally boiling potatoes and boiling eggs. It's kind of a pain, but so I've been making potato salad and I'm gotten pretty good. I got to say. So is this so just, several several secrets of good potato salad, but uh, 
One is no, no sweet pickle relish, dill pickle relish. And the other is celery salt. Got to have some good celery salt in there. Oh. Is that, do you, is that mayonnaise based or do you do like. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I don't, I use uh, oil and potatoes. And when they're still hot, you put a little vinegar on them so they soak up the vinegar. And then you let them sit for a while so they firm up because you want to have chunks of potatoes in there, not mashed up potatoes. And then I put in boiled eggs and hard-boiled eggs and uh, chopped onions and chopped celery and, and dill relish and a little salt and pepper and plenty of mayonnaise. It's uh, pretty good. I just finished a just finished a pint of it just a few minutes ago. Sounds good. Yeah, well, I watched the first episode of The Gilded Age, and uh, it it reminded me so the, the creator is Julian Fellows of, of Downton Abbey fame. It reminded me of how bad Downton Abbey was and like that. Oh, yeah. The hate watched is, it for a long time. The dialogue is bad. It's, but yeah. it, it, it's really fun to look at. And I am yeah. intrigued by Ashley Atkinson's character. So I may return to that. Um, I uh, read two books or finished two books this week that I, I liked quite a bit. One was um, Our Spoons Came from Woolworths by Barbara Commons, who's a, a British writer who lived uh, her life pretty much spanned the 20th century. Um, and the book is about a kind of bohemian woman in the in 1930s London during the Depression who, who marries young to uh, an artist who turns out to be a pretty much total wastrel um and it, it's just kind of about domestic life and and the the horrors of being poor and and uh, and kind of being an artist but it's it is so it the the, the voice of it is so strange and um charming i mean even it's it's a really dark book in times but the 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 narrator the main character is just is is so odd and uh charming that that it 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 carries you through uh commons gets a lot as sort of had a renaissance in recent years she's new york review of books put out three of her her reissued three of her books and and she gets talked a lot about as like one of those forgotten writers who who deserves more attention. So I'm excited to read more of her catalog. She gets, uh, her work all kind of has a fairy tale quality, I think. So I've read, and this one, this one had that as well. It's an, another book, uh, from New York review of books that, that I like that the plot sounds, sounds incredibly dull. Like, uh, I recommended Mrs. Palfrey at the Claremont, uh, several months ago. Anyway, so there's that, and then uh, Doug Stowe of Eureka Springs, uh, a much heralded woodworker, a, f- a former um, Arkansas living treasure, uh, has a new book called The Wisdom of Our Hands that comes out, I think, on Tuesday. I read it in advance because we're doing a little piece on him that I I, I loved. Uh, I thought it was just really smart. Um, perhaps not surprising because Doug's from Eureka Springs that it goes it includes everything from you know him talking about meditation and um philosophy to kind of practical 
woodworking tips, but the, the thesis is that uh, as a society, we don't we don't pay attention enough to uh, how important our hands are to, to learning and and, uh, you know, how we get kind of lost in the abstracted world and a little concrete handicraft is is good for the soul. So check that out when it comes out. Uh, I hope it it finds a wide audience. Doug has previously done a, a bunch of how-to books, several of which I own, but uh, it's cool to see him kind of go deeper into into the the process and his philosophy behind it. He's a sharp guy. Good. All right. Well, thanks for listening. And all uh, stay safe out there, and we'll be back. We'll see you around.